Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so glad you're here. Today's episode offers a view from 500 feet with one of the best minds in our business. If you've had the opportunity to hear Ruth Dillingham speak in public, then you know she's a treasure trove of knowledge on a plethora of topics. And you also know she's a bit of a lone wolf who makes it a hobby to examine and deeply understand some of the less obvious market issues of the day and of the days ahead. Ruth holds the designation of national title professional and is a highly regarded and nationally recognized attorney who advises mortgage and title professionals on legal and regulatory compliance matters. She's been an attorney in the industry for many years and she's just about seen it all. She's been active in the Massachusetts Real Estate Bar Association, past president of the New England Land Title Association, past chair of the Massachusetts Mortgage Bankers Association, and is very active in ALTA, MISMO, and the MBA. She's also one of my favorite conversation partners, so I hope you'll enjoy listening as Ruth and I cover a wide view of topics that fall under the heading of what you'll likely see and experience as you begin to pick your head up from the massive amount of mail calling you've been doing, and you start to look out over the next several months of life post-COVID. Fingers crossed on that. Ruth currently advises banking and title clients on a wide range of matters, and we're pleased to offer you a sample of her wisdom for free. So please enjoy my free-range conversation with Ruth Dillingham. Ruth Dillingham, welcome to Commitment Matters. Hello. Thanks for being here. I always look forward to our conversations. We always seem to run the gamut, Heather and Post, from pressing actual production matters to things we know that are coming on the horizon that we see. And we always have a really good discussion. So let's get kicked off. The first question I try to ask you every time I see you is, what's been on your mind lately? What's been keeping you up at night? What's been keeping (laughs) you busy? Well, a whole bunch of things. And I would say probably most top of mind is the big umbrella issue of have you been paying attention to the stuff that's been going on while you haven't been paying attention because you've been so busy trying to keep your little duck feet flying underneath the surface so that you look like you are serenely moving across the pond. With a mask on. Yes. Yes. And I certainly understand from the perspective of settlement agents, title agents, closing folks, the lenders for whom they work, just been nuts trying to crank out as many closings or title policies or whatever as their jobs dictate. And yet things are still happening on all of those fronts. The agencies and federal government continue to crank out regulations and new ideas, new tweaks to how they want the various groups to work together or apart. And my hope is that folks listening to podcasts like this are taking the time to pull themselves to 500 feet and say, wow, I really should put a couple of these long range issues on my short term to do list. That's completely fair because you're right. People have been so very busy just trying to get work out the door. They may not have been able to keep up on some of these changes. So what are the top two or three that they need to be tuned into and and maybe putting on that short-term action list? I certainly think if you're not already a member of your trade or professional association, you should definitely step up your game on that. In a state like Ohio that has a very active land title association, if you've let your membership lapse, if you've never been a member, this is a good time to join and start reading their newsletters, see what's at their website, find out what positions they're taking. And if you disagree or, or have a nuanced perspective, raise your hand and say a few things. 
If you're in a state where there is an unauthorized practice of law component, make sure you know where your bar association stands on all this. One of the things I'd say I've seen in my travels is a complacency is too harsh, but a sense that, oh, well, those folks at the bar association, they got this. They're looking out for me. And I think if this means that much to you, you should be in touch with the Bar Association asking them, do we have a subcommittee on this issue? Have we looked into this? Are we taking a position on this at our state legislative level? And get your voice heard because while, and I'm speaking primarily for more activist bar associations I know in particular, they tend to be very receptive, say, to the trial attorneys or to, depending on what's happening as a big media bubble in your state, the issues around uh, children and protective services or something of that sort. Well, you know, raise your hand and say, this is a big deal for me and everybody else who does real estate closings and be heard. That's where I would start. And I would certainly make sure you're at least aware of what ALTA's position is on this. If your state is going to take a position, it wants to at least communicate that to the National Trade Association. Well, that's a good point. And we forget because we know what we do day in and day out, but we forget that other industries, even that interact with us and have sort of a cursory understanding of what we do, don't know what our particular concerns are that we feel very passionate about and we think they should be obvious. You're mentioning of the Child Protective Services and the anonymous orders that are going on in some states. We had to really educate on that to explain where our concerns were with that and why we weren't pro-domestic violence <laughs> just because we had some information that we weren't able to redact or we weren't able to completely privatize by virtue of things coming on the public record. And yeah, people didn't immediately realize that we had a horse in that race. But once we got to talking about it, people understood, oh, of course. And so then we got some practical rules of the road instead of just some idealistic ones based in practical operations. So you're saying this is going to feel much the same as that sort of activity. And the same thing about abuse of elders and those who may be dependent adults, whether physically, emotionally, or mentally, in terms of making sure that their interests are protected in a real estate transaction. I think there may be some fear-mongering around this, but I think there may also be a fair amount of practical concern of what happens if three, four siblings inherit property and one of them isn't as intellectually capable as the other three and is taken advantage of. Who's there advocating for that? Who's there even seeing that person face-to-face when the notarization gets done? Exactly. Okay. The defensibility of Ron and Rin is they get challenged in court. Do you anticipate a flurry of these litigations? And if so, when? I mean, we didn't see the challenges to paper notes and paper mortgages until everything collapsed in 2007, 2008. We didn't see any mass or meaningful challenges really until then. So do you think that part of it's going to be coming sooner or later? Because that seems to be the linchpin for everyone saying, yes, we want to do this, but we have this giant unknown question mark out there. So we really can't get behind it. So it's kind of got everybody in the starting blocks, but not sure, is the gun going to go off? Is the gun not going to fire? And we're not going to race today. What's the deal? So how do you think that's going to go? Well, I think if you talk to anyone in the title insurance industry, they'll tell you it's as soon as we hit enough of a economic downturn that people start filing bankruptcy. 
the role of the trustee in bankruptcy, and I know this is sort of going to have some folks on this going, oh, really, Ruth? But yes, the role of the trustee in bankruptcy is very important in terms of marshalling the assets for the benefit of the unsecured creditors. And the best way to do that is to set aside a mortgage and free up a piece of formerly encumbered property and make it an unencumbered piece of real property now for the benefit of those unsecured creditors who would love very much to be able to sell the house and walk away with all of the value rather than the value post paying off the mortgage. So if in fact a economic downturn hits, and bear in mind, economic downturns do not have to be national in scope. It could be that this recent curtailment in the number of chips that are available to make cars that I'm now hearing could be 12, 18 months to push through the system. Well, all of a sudden, if you can't make high-end F-150 trucks, there's a lot of folks who are no longer working two and three shifts. They're working one and a half shifts. And if they're overextended, these little blips on the local or regional economic scale. And now all of a sudden you got a bunch of folks into the bankruptcy court and the trustee is saying, well, wait, what do you mean you weren't in the same room What do you mean I can't get the notary here to swear he saw you sign this face-to-face? Who knows the level of staying on top of Rin and Ron bankruptcy trustees have been up to. And I've heard anecdotally, I don't have any evidence for this, or I don't have any data for this, but I've heard anecdotally that the bankruptcy courts are backed up because, you know, we've got this K-shaped recovery graph. And so that they've been very busy. Mm -hmm. For starters, they didn't have court for a while. They finally figured out how to have court virtually. So I hope that will help. But if they're already sort of at peak volumes, and then to your point, a few more of these blips come on, I do wonder how aggressive they will be either at questioning Ron Wren. And I think depending on the platform, they'll find that maybe there is more assurances there than a piece of paper. But to your point, I don't know how much they've been staying on top of this and and feeling comfortable about it. But also, is there going to be a greater or lesser desire to, as you said, set aside the secured portion of that debt and free that up for other creditors? Because a lot of creditors are taking hits right now already just with that leg for whom the economy isn't going up. Yes. If as the holder of your MasterCard and Visa, I'm about to wipe out everything you owe me. I would be very much in favor of you suddenly not having a mortgage on your house. Sure. Well, sure. So from the perspective then of that small topic, if you will, in terms of focusing on a narrower business challenge, I also want folks in what I consider still to be my business, even though I haven't closed a loan in over 20 years, but in my business, to be thinking about what does the office of the future look like now that it's now? I know that it has been a fairly typical business decision, particularly I think some of the smaller offices, to either outsource or turn a blind eye or totally endorse having some of the work go home with the folks to do over the weekend, I'm sure in your line of business, you see plenty of folks who need to be set up remotely so they can type a title policies on Saturdays and Sundays. Yes, they're at work, but they can only work part-time because of child or other commitments, but they do have all Saturday afternoon free and they can bang out eight title policies. Can you just set her up at home so she can do this? Well, that went from, can you just set her up at home? Can you set all of us up at home? You may have more answers to this. I just have questions. What does it mean when now the bookkeeper is being set up at home with all of that NPPI? 
What does it mean when the person who packages up the files to send them back to the lender who has the 1003 and the credit card statements that you're using to send the checks to pay off Sears and Walmart and all of that? And I'm being a bit of an exaggerator here, but perhaps you can give me a reality check. If it were at my house, I'd have a card table in the guest room and all those files would be lying on the Mm -hmm. guest bed. And anybody who came into my house and wanted to watch something on TV that wasn't what I was watching in the living room would be sent down to the guest room where they are now sitting on the guest room bed against the wall with a bolster pillow surrounded by all those folders. Well, this reminds me of when we had the Friday the 13th memo and we were so deep in the woods discussing, and it obviously pertained to letters, lenders, but third party and fourth party liability. And we talked about your cleaning people in your office. And we talked about having your screens rayed out and making sure there was a path in common areas, say from the closing room to the restroom where people weren't going to wander by and be able to see it on your screen and, and take a quick snapshot with the camera. So the same really extends out now at this point. During pandemic, it was, let's just get stuff done. But as we get on the other side of that, and there's this national discussion about, well, who do we really need to have in the office? So yeah, I mean, that very much does now start to incorporate, let's say you have a cleaning person at your house or your house sitter, whatever that is, those same concerns now extend out. That doesn't even count making sure your employees have a VPN into your office and and all of those things. So, you know, and I'm playing a role here, of course, but let's pretend I'm the principal of the business. And now suddenly all of the little Marys and Nancys and Susies in my firm want to work from home on Fridays. Okay, yeah, I'd like to work from home, but that's our busiest day. We're either doing closings or packing up Thursday's closings and heaven forbid Monday's a national holiday because that means Tuesday's going to be nutsville. Sure, yeah. So instead of a one-off, and again, I'm sort of hoping folks are following a logic path here. Instead of the one-off of your most senior paralegal with the most expertise and the most attention to detail, who you trust with your life and therefore certainly trust with eight title policies, doing some work remotely on Saturdays, you now have all these folks who have been working from home for 12, 15 months saying, well, you had no problem with it last June. Why do I have to go back to the office now? Yeah, well, because we dodged a bullet last June because we didn't really set you up on the VPN and you have very weak internet access and we weren't ever really sure that we weren't sharing a computer with your kid who was going to school and your other kid who was using it for Dungeons and Dragons. So, yeah. That's not fair. Mm -hmm. How come Mary gets to work from home on Fridays and I don't? Just because of where I live, that's not fair. So I think there's going to have to be some guided conversations. And I'm kind of hoping that a place like Alta, which has been so successful in the last couple of years of running programs on sort of running your business type of perspective, I think that's going to be a very fertile field for discussion. It's one thing to say, hey, everybody who works here on Wall Street in New York lives within X miles of downtown New York City, and they all have fast broadband, and they all have extra guest rooms that they can turn into offices. And if they need to be secluded from what everybody else is doing, so no one eavesdrops, they can shut a door. 
Not everybody working in our industry has that luxury. Right. So, I mean, at minimum, I guess, for those who did not have time to create some company policies, because at the end of the day, the company's on the hook, right? So there will be inquiries about what your policies are around this. I agree with you. There's a real opportunity there for a leading of the charge to have solid work from home policies. And if somebody had to do that during the pandemic and didn't have time to craft policies, that's totally understandable. But coming out of this and and figuring out what our long-term trajectory is, that's something I think that really needs to be on the blotter to happen pretty soon if you're going to continue to have employees who work remotely, including a lot of people are finding now retired folks that don't want to come back in full time, but can you knock out five commitments a day from your home? We'll get them to you. Can you knock them out? So even those contractors, you're going to have to have under some policy, right? To piggyback on your point about we all understand what you had to do in order to get through the pandemic. Again, I'm playing a bit of a role here, but if I were the compliance department at a five-state regional bank and I had eight different shops per state, 40 different closing businesses law firms, settlement agents, title agents, all of whom, I'm not saying turned a blind eye, but whatever it took to get it done. Well, here we are, and we're starting to hear on CNBC, well, guess what? This firm now wants 50% of its workforce back in by June 5th. This group wants everybody in by Labor Day. And you're starting to say to yourself, okay, we've got this ad hoc cobbled together group of vendors. What have they been up to all these months? Let's sit down and do a survey. And then after the survey, let's send out some vendor compliance contracts or amendments to our contracts and really tighten up on who's working from home and what protections we as the lender have when we entrust our information to the care, custody, and control of a third-party vendor. And then even as that vendor business, I have a whole bunch of information that's come into my possession because I'm paying off Sears bills and I'm holding on to the application for the four days until it gets signed and returned and these sorts of things. And I think if in fact the marketplace slows down a little bit, (laughs) maybe everybody's worst nightmare, the compliance department all comes back to work and starts brainstorming around this. I hope that nobody gets caught flat-footed and that nobody says, even muttering to themselves, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can and nobody told me about this NPPI nonsense. We've been telling you about this. All to best practices have been out there for 15 years. This isn't new news. Be alert to how it might need modification for a new work environment. Well, right, because a clean desk policy is much easier to enforce in an in-office environment How are you going to enforce that when you have people who, by the way, if an employee says right now, I don't want to give anybody ideas, but if an employee says right now, no, I'm not comfortable. No, I don't want to come back to work. You know, this isn't a time that we can afford to be without even one set of hands. So our employers on the title and settlement world and the lender world are going to have to figure that out. 
Um, because at least right now, this is not an environment where an employer can say, okay, well, great. Thanks for playing. We'll go hire somebody else to do your job, right? It is a tough set of decisions to be made. I'm not denying that at all. But as I say, part of my selling point of myself is I'm the girl at 500 feet telling you what's over the horizon. And I don't want anyone discounting that this isn't going to happen eventually you're going to be getting that amendment to your vendor management contract asking you about remote work. So it's better to be prepared than not. Be ahead of the curve, right? I'd like to switch a little bit if we could. One of the things that you have always done so well is kept an eye on what the lenders were dealing with as it relates to, because you're a title settlement girl at heart, you kind of look at that through our lens and help us understand what is important to the lenders that they will need to have be important to us as their stakeholder partner. So let's talk about a few things that title and settlement folks need to understand about what the lenders are dealing with currently and coming up soon in the future. I'll start with probably the Biden administration CFPB's number one with a bullet, which is fair lending and ferreting out latent discrimination issues, making sure that equal access to credit is the gold standard and adhered to by everybody. I think everything that we have learned as a society in the last 12, 18 months Part of that goes to the need for an equal playing field for everyone. And one of the places I am confident we are going to see more investigation is equal playing field in economic fairness. And one of the places that have always been a target for that discussion is access to what it means to own a home, because home ownership is one of the biggest and most reliable ways for someone to make sure that they have economic stability. So where does that leave us? It says from the lender side, a lot more attention to looking for disparate impact and ferreting out potentially abusive or disrespectful policies that may have been latent within their business model, but should not be anymore. Now you say, and I very much am complimented by that point, that I tend to take that prism and then shine it on where does this affect that business partner who's, quote, doing the closing? Well, I'm going to sort of open it up, I guess, by tossing out a hypothetical to you, a variation on the one I throw to my lender clients. If you have three closings on the horizon for next week and it's Friday after lunch, and English is not only your first language, it is your pretty much only language. Your lender has recently expanded its footprint for whatever reasons into neighborhoods where we now have more folks who have English as a second language. And you now have to call them up with closing costs. You've got the Smiths and you've got the Hernandezes, and you know that calling the Smiths is going to be a pretty easy slam dunk. You've talked to Mrs. Smith before. She knows exactly what you're talking about. This is not her first trip to the real estate closing, running through numbers. She's very comfortable with them. And you only have to get one of these done before you can go home for the afternoon. Or you can pick up the phone and call Mrs. Hernandez, and it's going to take a longer time. This is a first-time homebuyer. She's uncomfortable with some of our terms of art in the home purchase financing world. She asks a lot of questions. 
numbers translation from English to Spanish is still a, a challenge for her. I challenge anybody who took high school Spanish to come up with $63,411.88 in Spanish. Most of us can count to 10 and thought it was a good day. We, we pat ourselves on the back for that. Exactly. Yeah. So does that paralegal then, without anybody looking over her shoulder or second guessing her, say, you know what? I'm going to call Mrs. Smith. I'm going to get this folder done. She's on for next week, someday next week, and I'll deal with Mrs. Hernandez on Monday. Well, of course, you let it slide till Monday. I gave Mrs. Smith the weekend to talk to her husband or her housemates to figure out who's going to the bank, when are we going to get the money, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Well, you've now knocked three days off for Mrs. Hernandez. She doesn't call you until after work on Monday. She lost all that day to get her financial ducks in the line. And now she's scrambling. And the next thing you know, she needs to get a postponement by a day or two. The lender's going to charge her a redraw fee. She may need her rate lock extended because she's not closing on Thursday because she couldn't get the money together fast enough. And the lender's willing to say, we'll put it off till Friday. But So I'm going to toss it to you, Mary. Is it unfair or is it a fair lending violation? And if you were the advocate for Mrs. Hernandez, where would you feel your client stood in this conversation? Well, I'd certainly, if I were advocating on behalf of that client, be able to make hay with that. It's somewhat similar to fairness in how you deal with employees. It's not necessarily about what does each one need. It's do you apply yourself your policies equally. And equal in action doesn't necessarily mean an equal outcome in that employee's experience. I think that's a similar analogy to what you're talking about here, which is, yes, if I looked at that scenario you just gave, I would absolutely make hay with that. And then being a good plaintiff's attorney that I am, I would say now, now, why is that? And let's look at some of your other files. Is this a pattern in practice? And, you know, I love that you bring this up because we tend to hear in the title and settlement world about fair lending practices. And we think, well, we're not lending anybody any money. So that's the lender's problem. That's somebody else's issue. But we all know that scrutiny on a transaction for whatever the reason can bring about some very difficult and uncomfortable realities, which usually not in our intention, but it's the domino outcomes that we're interested in. And I would also say that for a title and settlement agent, you have to not only look at those practicalities, but you also need to keep an eye on what your lender partners are doing. Because you know, Ruth and I know that if a deal gets a little squirrely, let's say it only had to do with the extension of credit, doesn't have anything to do with the closing we were doing or a commitment we produced, that lender's deals and all the stakeholders in their deals are going to be brought into the same scrutiny. So if you have an existing relationship with a lender who maybe isn't marketing the same way to different potential market segments or something like that, I think a title and settlement agent could get brought into that quite easily if they're not careful and aware of what their lender partners are doing and how that might be interpreted as pertaining to fair lending practices. I don't know what you think about that. No, I do. And putting your hat back on as plaintiff's counsel and going before the Commission Against Discrimination or filing a complaint with the Attorney General's office or with the business regulator for financial services 
whatever that's called in your state, is to look at everyone who has participated in the big transaction and say, not only did the closing department at the lender not get back to them quickly, and not only did the loan originator not tell them that they had a complete translation of all the documents into the language they're most comfortable with, available, never offered it, But when it came time to actually do the closing, the business entity who you trusted to represent you at the closing table, might I add, didn't bother to give me my closing costs until the night before the closing. And I've done a little scrutiny because I'm Mary and I'm good. And I know it's their articulated process to call everyone with closing costs three days in advance. So I'm tossing it out there because it's going to be something that lenders are going to be under a microscope on. And there are enough places where the settlement and closing industry is hand in hand in treatment of the lender's customer that it's going to make a big difference if you're doing it correctly. Yeah, agreed. And again, I don't want to scare people, but It's widely known that this is an area of intense scrutiny right now. And so I just want everyone to understand, even though it falls under fair lending, fair credit, we can absolutely get looped into there because of our participation in a prospective or actual transaction or set of transactions. Yeah. And then my last little tidbit from the lender world, be aware of what the GSCs are doing. Be aware of Fannie and Freddie underwriting guidelines as they impact who can be a borrower. Okay, let's talk more about that. If you have built your entire business model on your relationships with builders of second homes in pick a resort, you know, Haven. Tell you right. I like tell you right. Okay, tell you right. Yeah. So I'm going to pretend I'm the Census Bureau here. The vast majority of people who own real estate and tell you ride of a residential nature have it as a second home. It is not their principal pace of living. And they bought most of them, not for cash, but with some sort of financing. And those who could have figured out bought with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac mortgages because that's the cheapest money on the market. So what happens when Fannie and Freddie say we're now going to cap our portfolio and looking back to January 1, We're not taking more than, say, 7% of our money on the street can be for second homes. Oh, and did we mention we're already up at six and a half? So what does that mean going forward? Well, you know, for a while, I guess it means we're not buying any more second homes. What do you mean you're not buying mortgages on second homes? This This is my bread and butter. This is what I do. I'm hand in glove with this builder who builds these second homes. And he's got relationships with this lender who's approving all these condo projects for Fannie Freddie pre-approval. We've nailed this down. Yeah, except we're not buying condos for second homes for the foreseeable future. They're going to end up going into the non-GSE market. They're going to be tougher to underwrite. They're going to have more what the lending industry calls overlays in terms of underwriting criteria. They may be harder to approve. They may be more expensive. And what was, and I'm not saying it's ever a slam dunk, but what was closer to a slam dunk for your builder client with whom you've worked on this relationship for so long to be able to send these folks off to Sun Valley Savings Bank or whatever. And now... No, that bank doesn't have an outlet to sell these loans. So that person scrambling to find the financing to refer these folks 
over to. And when the financing does fall into place, it's more complicated. And it can be a set of closing instructions that instead of being a page long is three pages long, and it's a whole new lender to get used to. Please, 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 if you have a steady stream of work that is a niche product, be sure you know how that niche is being tampered with if it is. And I can tell you right now, things such as second homes and places where there is a high incidence of borrower fraud are under very strict scrutiny. Okay, I've got a couple of wild cards for you. What do you think the proposed changes to the capital gains exemption might do to the housing market? Well, I'd love to see an analysis of what that means for the cash buyer. I think certainly, and let's assume for the point of discussion, tweaking with capital gains treatment is probably never going to drill down to Joe and Mary Smith in a $400,000, $500,000 house that's got a 80% Fannie Freddie mortgage on it, where neither of them has a sexy investment portfolio and they're just you know keeping the bills paid. I think that group will always be pretty protected from an outrageous treatment of the little bit that they make over the couple of years that they pay down their mortgage to buy up to the next house. Right. I think something we've seen in the last two, three, five years is this real impetus in the marketplace for cash buyers at the very high end. And for me, at least a lot of it's anecdotal, whether it's money fleeing other countries coming here for good or for bad reasons, folks who just have a lot of money, quote, lying around. Done well in the market. Yep. They've done well in the stock market and they're looking to switch their asset diversification goals. Folks who are flushing cash because they had an investment that paid off well or they retired early or whatever. Or it's just a real estate investor buys and sells commercial or residential property for, for fun and profit. And I think some of those folks, if they anticipated that the reason they bought real estate was because it was a fairly illiquid investment and would presumably always be movable as a long-term capital gain rather than short-term. To some extent, I don't think that they were guided by the best reason to buy real estate. It shouldn't be what you're going to sell it for. It should be what is it worth as a long-term investment. And if you're thinking about how can I risk a little money and make a big reward, I recommend hitting the craps table. To the extent that there may be some tweaking of the tax code to adjust the amount of money going into the federal treasury because of folks who have done very, very well over a longish period of time in real estate investments, then if one believes in the philosophy of where that money's going for the common good, then I think it's something that might very well move along. I think there will always be protections for the folks at the lower end of the financial spectrum. It's really going to get interesting as folks at the very higher end There's a lot of folks who have very little sympathy for someone who could find $5 million to buy a second home in Telluride. That's one that I'm certainly watching. Okay, finally, there's been so much going on in in such unprecedented times. What's the immediate future look like for lenders, title, and settlement agents? What's what's on the plate immediately ahead? I'm going to say 
One big picture thing and one really sort of mundane minutia thing. Big picture thing, I'm going to end where I started. Get up to 500 feet and find out what's going on in your world. Talk to your peers, talk to your trade association. Find a minute to read those email subscriptions you subscribe to every morning. Get your toes back in the water about where your source of business is, what its needs are, how they evolved in the last 6, 12, 18 months? What are their expectations of you in the next six months? Be ready for whatever it is that's going to come popping up because things are. And to the extent that you have the offerings of things such as this podcast, listen, take notes, act on the advice that you get. Certainly not everything that I say or Mary says is going to be directly on point to you, but if one nugget is, keep it and run with it. That's sort of my big picture advocacy. Now I'm going to start sounding like the job I had 25, 27 years ago. When I ran a paralegal office within an office, it's going to be a slog of a cleanup over the course of the next couple of months. You've got 15 months of closings that you did as fast and as efficiently as you possibly could, but there are documents that got lost, there are loose ends, there are lagging things. I can't even imagine how many discharges, releases, and other cleanup documents are sitting in inboxes with checks affixed to them made payable to the appropriate recorder of land records that are just waiting for someone to have two minutes to stick them in an envelope and mail them or sit down at the computer terminal and simplify them. But there must be tons of stuff that folks just didn't get to as you lurched from crisis to crisis. Now, let's pretend that I'm in charge and you're the paralegals. Everybody, we're all coming in for the next four Saturdays. Yes, I know Saturdays are sacrosanct. I'll buy the pizza. I'll even give all of you a gift certificate. Your choice, either the golf place or the beauty spa. The men all get pedicures and the women all take golf lessons. I truly don't care in exchange for coming in on these next five Saturdays, but we have to clean this up. And the last thing I, now I'm speaking like the business owner, the last thing I want to do is get a phone call from my contact person, Mary, at my number one bank business source saying, hey, Ruth, I keep sending emails to Patty Paralegal asking for the title policies on these 20 properties. And first she would respond and say she's getting on it. But now I'm not even getting an email back and I've got investors who are withholding funding until I can deliver these title policies. Could you look into it? And me saying, Patty, Patty left six months ago when she had twins. Did we never even change her email address to forward it over to me? Yeah. Well, and we're already seeing some of that. We're hearing from the underwriters that lenders who have been trying to reach the issuing agent for policies and haven't been able to get a response. To your point, we know why uh, they're working on today, tomorrow, and next week. They're now calling the underwriters and saying, hey, we need this policy. We need this policy. Can you help us get this policy? And so whether it's your bank rep calling you as the business owner or, God forbid, calling your underwriter and putting a big question mark in the underwriter's mind of, okay, we understand you're busy, but 
what the heck? You've got us on the hook for this. We need to deliver it. And you're right. Those sorts of things are starting to happen. If we don't get on top of it now, it's going to be a snowball headed for hell. Yes, it is. And bear in mind, and this is unfortunately, unfortunately, I've spent too much time in the trenches. It's one thing to have that backstop of the title underwriter who's nudging you. Hey, come on, you know, let's get those title policies out. But if title policies is the only thing you have been current on and you still haven't returned the 65 junk file folders worth of miscellaneous documents or the recording overages. Yes. Or proof of the accountability on some money or partial release the documents that nobody cares about, but golly, if we don't show we collected a statement informing them of the federal lead paint law on every closing, it's an incomplete file. And now the FDIC is coming in to do an audit and the lenders doing its due diligence and it can't find those. And those are ones where, and I I don't mean to throw your paralegal staff under the bus here, but those are the ones where a clever paralegal doesn't even get second guessed by an underwriter, an insurance underwriter. They're just saying, oh, I sent it. And you're so busy. You're not pawing through their files to make sure it got sent. And then the lender's calling and saying, we never got it. Paralegal's saying, oh, I sent it. This is, unfortunately, the cause and effect here is that that lender stops sending you work. Well, Ruth, I always love plumbing your mind to see what's going on. I know you occasionally get a bad rap for being a gloom and doomer, but I don't look at it that way at all. I look at it as you're very good about taking theoretical concerns and disseminating them down to what we need to practically do to avoid those becoming a problem. So it's been a joy to talk with you again today. I can't wait to see you in person. And I know our listeners are going to really enjoy all of the, not just food for thought, but action items you've given for them as homework to help keep them steered clear coming out of this craziness. I'm putting my hands together like the little emoji. (laughs) The little prayer emoji. The little prayer emojis. My hope for all of you is that you've learned from past busy times and you take those lessons and get on it now. It's always fun to catch up with Ruth and see what she has on her radar. She also issues a newsletter for her clients. And if you'd like to learn more about that, you can reach Ruth at her email, which is linked in the show notes. Sometimes for fun, I try to come up with a topic that might be obscure enough for Ruth to not yet have formed an opinion on it. But I confess I haven't found one yet. Please visit the show notes. Click the link to complete a quick survey for your chance to win a pair of AirPod Pros. So until next time, start to make a plan for what you want to accomplish after the craziness dies down even just a little bit. Give yourself a pat on the back for making it this far without the wheels coming completely off because you've done really great. And please don't forget that what you do and your commitment to doing it really matters.